Women have played a significant role in our society and culture through time. So let's take a look at the history from the women's side. I'm your host, Brittany, and welcome to Her Story Sessions. For most of time, it's generally assumed that when there was a war, it was men that went off to fight and women stayed behind to care for their homes and raise the children. This may be true most of the time, but there are cultures with women who trained and fought alongside the men, and there are plenty of examples of women that broke away from their accepted domestic roles and proved themselves to be exceptional fighters. We've been left with a mix of history and myth on this topic, but whether real or not, female fighters have always held a position of fascination amongst many societies. One group that falls between myth and history is the Amazons. No, not the immortals on a hidden island that gave us Wonder Woman. These are the Amazons from ancient Greek times, a group of warrior women that were the Greeks' arch enemies, and every hero or champion from Hercules to Achilles had to fight a powerful warrior queen at some point. These Amazons were the daughters of Ares, the god of war, living in a woman-only society where they used outside men to reproduce and abandoned any boys that were born. They rode on horseback, hunted, and were especially good with bows. This all falls on the mythical side, of course, the basis of good stories for the Greeks to tell. Stories like Hercules' ninth trial, when he was sent by the king of Mycenae to retrieve the girdle of the Amazonian queen Hippolyte. The girdle was a gift from her father Ares, and Hercules was sent on the mission precisely because the king thought it was an impossibly dangerous task. The stories vary between Queen Hippolyte willingly just handing it over and Hercules bringing an entire army with him and fighting the Amazons, ultimately winning and taking the girdle. There's also another completely different encounter of Hercules fighting an Amazon named Andromeda that shows up on pottery two centuries before the literary version with Queen Hippolyte and there's no belt ever shown in one. This is just proof of the complicated and ever-changing oral stories of the Greeks. One thing that doesn't change, though, is Theseus, another hero that came along with Hercules, who falls in love with the Amazon Antiope and either elopes or abducts her, leading to another encounter between the Greeks and the Amazons later on. He eventually becomes the leader of Athens, and the Amazons then go on a rescue mission to get Antiope back. Theseus defeats them, but Antiope is killed in the battle. Near the end of the Trojan War, Achilles fights Penthelisa, daughter of Ares and the Amazon Otorer. In some accounts, he removes her helmet and falls in love with her just before she dies. This scene is shown on a black figure vase from 540 BCE. There are several examples of general battles with the Amazons in Greek art, especially on the vase art. Hercules fighting the Amazons is the second most depicted of all of his labors. Unnamed warriors fighting Amazons was common throughout the 5th and 6th centuries BCE. For years, these stories were thought to be entirely fictional, but are now thought to be actually based on real women from Scythian tribes who were tattooed, rode horses, hunted, and fought with bows alongside their men of the tribes. These were the Eurasian nomadic tribes on the steppes of current-day Turkey and Russia. With these people living in small tribes, everyone would have had to have helped to defend the group and hunt for food. And with the domestication of the horse and horse riding becoming common and the invention of the Scythian bow, which is smaller and very powerful, women were easily as quick and deadly as men could be, especially if they've trained since childhood. Also, the men and women were tattooed, and tattoo kits are commonly found in burial sites. 
This is all coming from archaeologists who have been excavating grave sites and finding women surrounded by weapons and tools traditionally thought to be only used by the men, and there's evidence of injuries caused by fighting on these women's skeletons. The Greek, who held more value on men, were fascinated and appalled that these women would be equal to the men of their tribes, as Greek women belonged at home only taking part in the domestic side of society. So stories of these Scythian women spread and became more and more fantastical over time, eventually leading to the Greek myth of the Amazons. Even the stories that they abandoned their boy children could be slightly based in fact, although it obviously became very skewed over time. One of the common stories was that these mythical Amazon women would send the boys back to be raised by their fathers, which the Greeks interpreted as neglecting their motherly duties. But among the Manic tribes of the steppes, fosterage was a common practice. Fosterage was sending sons to live with another tribe, something that ensured good relations between the tribes and a practice used to seal treaties. So Scythian women probably did send their sons away, but not because they were unwanted in any way. The stories of the Amazons were carried on through time into modern Western society. In the 19th century, Europeans encountered an all-female military agent from the Kingdom of Dahomey that reminded them so much of the old myths, they called them the Dahomey Amazons. These were extremely skilled and fearless fighters. This kingdom was part of what is now Benin in Western Africa, lasting from 1625 to 1894. Of course, they didn't call themselves Amazons. They were referred to as either the Mino, meaning our mothers, or Ahosi, meaning the king's wives. I found both names, but we'll stick with Mino since it seems to be the more commonly used name. According to the legend, Queen Hangbi took the throne after her twin brother passed away and only held the throne for a short while, but founded the all-female regiment while she ruled. Stories differ about how they were formed, but the more commonly accepted one is that they were formed to serve as royal bodyguards to Hangbi and continue to do so for the following kings as well. Another story states that the queen's father had established an all-female corps of elephant hunters before she appointed them to guard duty. Accounts of which women were recruited also vary, some saying it was voluntary enrollment by the free Dahomean women, and girls as young as eight would join, others that it was involuntary and that women were enforceably rolled if their fathers or their husbands complained of their behavior. The aggressive character traits these women allegedly had would be honed to use to fight. Other stories state these women were only recruited from the Ahosi, the king's wives, of which there were hundreds. These women were supposedly legally married to the king, although they had to be celibate and were not allowed to bear children. These women held a semi-sacred status as part of the Vodun, their belief system. They trained intensely and were highly disciplined, learning survival skills and developing high tolerances to pain and indifference to death. Serving offered them a chance to rise to positions of command and influence, and they also enjoyed high social status and wealth. King Gizo, who ruled from 1818 to 1858, officially integrated them into the army, and by the mid-19th century, they numbered somewhere between 1,000 and 6,000, about a third of the entire Dahomey army, according to visitors' accounts. The Mino were structured in parallel to the army as a whole, with the center wing made up of the king's bodyguards flanked on each side with other regiments. The women's army consisted of several regiments, huntresses, riflewomen, reapers, archers, and gunners. Each regiment had different uniforms, weapons, and commanders. In later years, the Moni were armed with Winchester rifles, clubs, knives, and the units were all under female command. The Dahomey were often at war with their neighbors, and the Mino took part in them also. 
They were eventually disbanded after the Dahomey lost a war to the French and they became a French protectorate. Going way north and back to Viking times, there's a group of mythical women also involved in battles, although in a different way. The Valkyries, meaning choosers of the slain in Old Norse, are the female helping spirits of Odin. During battles, they choose who will be taken to Valhalla, the highest honor for the Viking warriors. The modern image of beautiful maidens burying the spirits of the fallen away is accurate, but selective, leading out the not-so-nice qualities. This began in later Norse stories, which tended to focus on their love affairs with human men and the escorting of spirits. In older stories, these qualities are still there, but so are more malicious ones, such as not only choosing who gets into Valhalla, but also choosing who will die in battle and using magic to ensure that that happens. There are many examples of this in the Edas and the Sagas, a group of poems that have been collected and recount Norse mythological stories. In a poem within Najal's saga, a more gruesome side is shown. Prior to the Battle of Clontarf, twelve Valkyries sit at a loom, weaving the fate of the warriors. They use intestines as thread, the weights are severed heads, and they use swords and arrows for the beaters, delightfully chanting their intentions while they work. There was a cultural overlap among the Celts, Norse, and Germanic people, and this review is reflected in the Germanic people's lore also. Especially amongst the Anglo-Saxons, Valkyries were the female spirits of carnage. The Celts had similar beings in the goddess Badab and Morrigan. The Valkyries were mythical, but what about shield maidens, actual human warriors? These were the women that marched into war alongside the men. Whether they actually existed outside of war is debated still, and the few historical accounts we have, we can't be sure of on their accuracy. One of the first accounts we have is from the 1070s when Adam of Bremen wrote of the women in the Lake Moeren vicinity in northern Sweden. This settlement, he wrote, was inhabited by women who looked like warriors, but it is not clear whether these women actually fought or not. Saxo Grammaticus, a Danish historian, mentions shield maidens who spent their lives mastering sword and warrior skills and writes how these strong females who gave up their simple lives for warrior lives constantly in search of a fight. There is plenty of art, from brooches to figurines depicting women with their hair tied back into ponytails, wearing sleeveless dresses, thought to allow freedom of movement for their arms, equipped with armor, carrying spears, swords, or shields. We're unsure of whether these women shown were Valkyries or shield maidens, but they're amazing nonetheless. The Burka gravesite, first discovered in the late 1800s, seems to be a high-ranking warrior and was dressed in silk with silver thread decorations, and the grave included a sword, an axe, a spear, armor-piercing arrows, a battle knife, two shields, and two horses, a mare, and a stallion. There was also a strategic game board beside them, and the bag with pieces was placed in their lap. This was important as a full set is usually found with military leaders. It was originally thought to be male, as any graves that looked to be warrior burials were assumed to be at the time. But with its technological advances and testing, DNA showed the skeleton to be female. This has raised more questions than it has answered. Was this person buried with their own belongings, or were they given to them upon burial? Was this a normal type of burial, or is it a deviant from the norms of the time? Did they possibly identify as another gender and not as a woman? Warrior was more of a social construct rather than just a defining of the actual fighters of the society. So were they a warrior in a different context and never actually wielded any of these weapons? Some of these we can't really answer right now. Others will take much more studying and an understanding of their culture before we can know. 
but we do know is that it was a female and that they were buried with a plethora of items symbolizing a warrior status. Many believe she wouldn't have been alone in this role, and there must have been other female fighters that existed too, meaning that shield maidens were, in fact, real, even if they were usually an exception to the norm. And now, way off to the east in feudal Japan, we have more women warriors. Existing during the 12th through 19th centuries, these were the Onobugeisha, women from the noble class trained primarily to defend themselves and their homes. If their communities were attacked, the Onobugeisha were expected to fight and die with honor, weapon in hand. They were trained in martial arts and strategy and specialized in the use of the naginata, a long polearm with a curved blade at its tip. This was a weapon designed specifically for women, giving them an advantage with its length as their stature was usually smaller than that of a male enemy's. During the peaceful years of the Edo period, the naginata became a status symbol and was often part of a noble woman's dowry, but it was only used for moral training and means of instilling the idealized virtues necessary to be a samurai wife. Strength, subservience, and above all, endurance. Practice with the naginata became more about spiritual fulfillment rather than actual combat practice. Still, later in the Meiji era, it became a popular martial art for women and many schools focused on its use. The Onobugeisha predate samurai but were part of the samurai class later on as both groups were from the nobility and highly trained in a specific weapon, the Onobugeisha with a naginata and the samurai with a katana. All clans across Japan had both samurai and onobugeisha, but as a woman's traditional was a homemaker and a wife, there are few historical accounts of the onobugeisha. Recent research does show women did fight in battles more frequently than originally thought. At the site of the Battle of Senbon Matsuburo in 1580, 35 of the 105 bodies excavated were female. The beginning of the onobugeisha traces back to Empress Jingyu, who lived from 169 to 269. She was said to be a fearsome warrior that defied all social norms of her time. She took the throne after the death of her husband, Emperor Chui. She then led an attack on Silla, which is present-day Korea, herself. Some stories state she was pregnant at the time, and so she bound herself up, put on men's clothes, and rode into battle, not shedding a single drop of blood on the successful expedition. She then continued her rule over Japan until the age of 100. In 1881, she became the first woman to appear on a Japanese banknote. One of the most famous of these Japanese warrior women appeared during the Genpei War, which took place from 1180 to 1185. Tomoe Gozen, Gozen meaning lady, was an expert in archery, horseback riding, and the art of the katana. In the 14th century, the tale of the hike, she is described as especially beautiful with white skin, long hair, and charming features. She was also a remarkably strong character, and as a swordswoman, she was a warrior worth a thousand, ready to confront a demon or a god, mounted or on foot. She handled unbroken horses with superb skill. She rode unscathed down perilous descents. Whenever a battle was imminent, Yoshinaka sent her out as his first captain, equipped with strong armor, an oversized sword, and a mighty bow, and she performed more deeds of valor than any of his other warriors. One of the few women who engaged in offensive rather than defensive fighting, she was called an Onomusha. She led troops, and they trusted and respected her. In 1184, she led 300 samurai into battle against 2,000 Taira clan warriors and was one of only five to survive. 
During the Battle of Awazu later that year, she defeated the Musashi clan leader and decapitated him, keeping his head as a trophy. Her reputation was so great that it said that she was considered the first ju- true general of Japan by her leader, Lord Kiso no Yoshinaka. Considered the last of the greatest women warriors was Nakano Takeko, a 21-year-old that led a group of women into the Battle of Aizu against the Emperor's forces. She was the daughter of Nakano Henai, a samurai and high-ranking officer in court, and she was highly educated and trained in martial arts and the use of the Naginata. Without the permission of the army leaders, she led the retroactively named Joshitai into battle. They fought autonomously as they were not officially allowed to take part in the army. Takeko killed several men before being hit with a bullet in her chest. Before dying, she asked her sister to cut off her head and to take it with her so that the enemy could not take it as a war trophy. Her sister took her head to the family temple where it was buried with honor by a priest. When the war was over and the imperial army had won, the feudal samurai class was abolished and the western-style national army was formed, making Tateko one of the last of the Onabigeisha in history. After this, the legacy of these warrior women were buried, with western culture believing that only men as samurais were the fighters and that women always stayed subservient at home. There was another group of women in feudal Japan that were highly skilled, although not quite so in the open when it came to fighting. The kunashoi, as they're called, did more quiet espionage and were used as spies, messengers, and assassins. They had the core martial arts training, such as ninjutsu and taijutsu, just as ninjas did, but their weapons were different. One was the nekote, claw-like finger extensions that they stabbed into the target's neck, and they would sometimes dip these in venom beforehand. They would also use tessin, which were metal-bladed folding fans, as weapons. Tessins were commonly carried by everyone, so they were a weapon that can be hidden in plain sight. They also used poisons, usually in the target's alcohol, which meant quick consumption and potency. A typical type of assignment was spying, usually to be a maid in an enemy's household, where they could gather information by eavesdropping or talking to the other maids and servants to gather any info or gossip that they had. They could also use sex to try to get close to someone and get info that way. Possibly the most famous kunoichi is Moichizuki Chiyomi from the 16th century, although whether she was a real person or not isn't exactly clear. She was a noblewoman and the wife of a samurai warlord, although there were rumors that she was originally from the Koga ninja clan. At one point, while her husband was away at war, she lived under his uncle, a famous daimyo named Takeda Shingen. Shingen gave Chiyome a mission to recruit and train women and to set up an underground network of espionage operatives. She set up in Nazu village in the Shinshu region and recruited up to 300 women. These were mostly war victims, prostitutes, and orphans. The locals believed she was running an unofficial orphanage for victimized girls. In reality, these women were training, learning to use disguises such as Miko, which is a Shinto shrine priestess, as prostitutes or as geisha. They used these disguises to either spy on or assassinate their targets. Chiyome's Kunochi network served Shingen all the way up to his death in 1573. Mythical or real, these groups of women were something to be feared. Their strengths and their courage were admirable. They impacted history, and for that, they don't deserve to be overlooked in the slightest. Of everything I talked about today, before researching, I only knew of the Greek Amazon stories and the vague notion that they were based on real women and of the Valkyries. 
it was really exciting to come across these new warrior groups that I didn't know about before, and I hope you enjoyed hearing about them as much as I did learning about them. That's it for today, and thank you for attending this Her Story session. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Her Story Session, and make sure to click follow for more episodes.